Well, turn with, with me, if you will, to Psalm 52. Psalm 52, as we look together at a mascal of David, when Doag the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And it's a psalm written to the choir master uh, for the worship of God. This is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Amen. May God bless that word to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that your word would be open and that it would not just charm our hearts or ears or minds, but rather that it would have its way with us, that your Holy Spirit that inspired this word would transform us, that he would make us more and more after the image of Christ. We pray that the Spirit would drive this Word deeply into our souls and that it might be a fruitful means of grace to us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what in the world does Psalm 52 have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with the incarnation and the sounds of singing of angels? And what does it have to do with rejoicing over Bethlehem and and all the blessings that come in the Incarnation to the people of God. It is written on the occasion of reflection on great treachery. It is a psalm in a minor key, and one that is very hard at first to sing. It was written by David. But when we look at the rest of David's psalms, this one stands out as a strange, as an odd psalm. You see, it it begins not addressing God, but rather addressing an evil man instead. But the psalm is rich with encouragement and filled with pointed lessons for the Christian life. And so let's gather together around this text And see that it teaches us the grace of God 
triumphs in the end. God wins, and His grace ultimately triumphs. You see, this psalm teaches us in the very first verse that evil is bad and that evil men do wicked and bad things. Look at verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Now here the topic of evil is introduced, but the topic not just of evil in general with a broad brush. This is a very fine marker that David has out and he's painting on the canvas for us. Because you see in that little zero verse, the little introductory statement, he tells us the occasion on which he's writing to the choir master, a mascal of David. When Doag the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And so we are, we are set to run to our concordance or, or to look down at the bottom of the page in our study Bibles. Who is this Doag the Edomite? Now, who would name their child Doag? Well, we don't need to turn too far back. As a matter of fact, as a congregation, we have read the, the key passage which sheds light on the context in which this psalm was written. It's 1 Samuel chapter 22. And verses 18 and 19 say this. Then the king said to Doag, You turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephah. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. Who is the king who's commanding this Horrible and murderous man? Well, it is none other than King Saul, who is in pursuit after his supposed enemy David. Saul, the image of reprobation in the Bible. Saul, the one who became king by demand of the flesh of God's people, in which God Himself acquiesced and taught them a lesson of the need to go in pursuit of the spirit rather than of the flesh. Doag, the Edomite, one who was in the service of this earthly king, in the service of the king of Israel, swinging his sword at the whimsical command of this monarch. And who is he pursuing? But Ahimelech, the priest who gave food and aid rightly to David, and his men as he fled from Saul. And so Saul ordered his troops to kill Ahimelech. And his troops, knowing that the priest was righteous, sensing that the command of their monarch was not in line with the moral law of God, but rather was a terroristic abuse of his power, they sat on their hands and refused to lift up their hands against the Lord's anointed the priest of Israel. But Doag, he was in 
Edomite by birth, Doag. He was one who was in the king's inner circle and most likely willing and able to swing his sword without restraint. The reprobate Saul turned to this wicked and evil man and he put to death the priests of the Lord and their families in Nob. Eighty-five priests, not to mention the city where they dwelt, not to mention their children, their infants, their animals, every living and breathing thing in that place. The text is clear. The song from the opening verse leaves us in no doubt. Evil men do evil things. We live in a fallen and wicked world. You see, Doeg is an unusual person in the text of Scripture. He is the personification of evil. He is the focal point of evil, certainly in Old Testament history. And by the nature of his active evil, one could argue that he is the focal point of evil in all of redemptive history. On one level, his character is much less complex and much darker than that even of Judas Iscariot. Judas was a betrayer. But Judas, in his character, at least was fudge ripple ice cream. There were some things there to commend him so that he was trusted more than any other with the purse. Doag. Doag is a picture. He's a portrait. He's an off-key note of pure concentrated, unadulterated evil. Now, if I can illustrate that and make a confession at the same time. You know, last evening, my wife's uh, law firm where she works uh, had its annual Christmas party. It's something we've gone to a couple of times. It was a very nice occasion. It was held at a nice restaurant downtown and And everything was fine in the meal until they brought the desserts. You see, I I restrained myself and I I ordered berries. The same berries I eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Berries. I suppose there were berries in the garden before the fall, but some mornings it's difficult to imagine. And the lady sitting right across from me, you see, she ordered chocolate cake. But it wasn't just any kind of chocolate cake. It was a flourless chocolate cake. It was, it was this um, not so large but very dense uh, chocolate cake. And, and she began holding out uh, the opportunity to taste everyone at the table who wished. And, you know, just as happened in the garden, that woman, she took a little bit. <laughs> And she held it out to me and she made me eat. It was the most delicious piece of chocolate cake I've had since September. And the strange thing about it, it had a density. It had a density of chocolate and flavor like I have never tasted before. I I don't know how you make it, but I sure hope we get the recipe. Now, this is a backwards illustration. 
of concentrated, dense, tasty wonder illustrating the fact that you can have a dark and dense and irrepressible form of evil that dwells within the church. Evil is bad. And Doag is the focal point and incarnation of all that's evil in redemptive history. And the next breath of the psalm perhaps shocks us all the more. There's this frame of of a historic event which is tragic and heart-wrenching and infuriating all at the same time. And it's not just to the sword of Doag and evil ones in his train that David sings. He also sings to their tongue. Verse 2, your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. Here the weapon is not a giant claymore in his hands with which he tears at the flesh of his enemies. But rather, it's his tongue equally as sharp, equally as able to cut the heart and life out of another. The tongue of the tongue referred to in verse 2 is paralleled to Doeg's sword, which he bloodied with the blood of innocence. But this, this illustration is not chosen by David because of gossip, which is bad enough in itself. It's rather the connection, the commingling in the life of fallen men and women like you and me, of the tongue on the one hand and the heart on the other. You see, what we speak reveals the inner man or the inner woman. What David is saying here is that evil hearts lie behind evil deeds. And he unfolds that in more detail in the next two verses. You love evil more than good. So here he addresses the heart of Doeg. And lying more than speaking what is right. And then there's that little strange word, Shelah, there's that little indication that the singer should pause and that the words and their implications and application to our own life should be given time and space to seep into us like a sponge absorbing so much water. We absorb this truth and we are left looking back to our Heavenly Father and saying, Lord, is it I? So let me ask you, are you in the habit of of venting your spleen? Then the problem is really on the inside. Make no mistake about it, Doag is a very interesting character in the sense that he doubtless thought that he was doing the right thing. He was obeying the king. He was doing what others were not willing to do. He was willing to pick up the sword in obedience to a command without one thought as to whether that command was righteous or holy. Blind obedience. Evil and wicked obedience. Yes, conviction. Yes, zeal. But how else but a broken and dark and evil and heavy heart Can you explain the cutting down of 85 priests, not to mention all their wives, all their children, even their infants, 
down to the animals which scattered as he went through the city? Oh, perhaps he saw himself in, in a long line of zealous executioners. You know, in the pages of Scripture, there are holy and righteous ones who by the command of Almighty God carried out a judgment that was good for the people of God more generally because it warned them of coming judgment and of the evil of defiling their relationship with the Lord. Do you remember the sons of Levi who in Exodus 32 stood with Moses, killing every man his brother and his friend because of the evil of the golden calf? That... That idolatry was an occasion on which to stand with the Lord. Who is on the Lord's side? That was a day to stand with God. Or perhaps your mind goes to Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, who in Numbers 25 threw a spear and he pierced through not only the disobedient Israelite, but also his Midianite mistress, both at the same time. But then we come to Doag, and we run into a granite wall because his character is different. His situation is fundamentally altered. He may have thought that he was right and that they were wrong, but Doag's problem was that he was sadly mistaken about the ethics, about the theology, about the morality and the authority of the situation in which he was in. Saul may have been the king, but he was not the hero of the story. Saul was a picture of reprobation, and Doeg had seen that over and over and over again as he was in that inner circle. He had before him those who had aided the one who was a picture not of reprobation, but of the Son of God incarnate to come, the promised Savior. Doag struck out against the Lord and the Lord's anointed. Doag picked the wrong side, the wrong battle, the wrong time. And all of his thinking and doing was upside down. You see, sometimes this happens in the visible church. Sometimes evil is called good, and good is called evil. As many in the congregation know, I've I've spent some time working with the Grace Organization on uh, child abuse situations in the wider church, uh, mission agencies and Christian schools and and in local congregations. I I give thanks to God that we haven't, uh, by any means, we had no uh, need to call Grace into our situation, our our life and congregation here or into our presbytery. But we must recognize that there are occasions in the life of the visible church where good is called evil and evil is called good. And in that whole area of child abuse, there's no more prime contemporary example of such. Folks can get on their high horse and justify almost any crime with twisted thinking Only the light of God's Word and God's law as brought to heart and life by the Son of God through the mediation of His Holy Spirit can straighten our compass and show us the right way forward. Sometimes good and evil are in our life 
like places on a chessboard, light and dark, good and evil, only separated just by a line. So we must go back to the Word of God. We must go back to the character of Christ, to the commandment of the moral law, to the whole warp and woof of redemptive history. We must go back and measure by the Bible whether what we are about to do is right or wrong, good or evil, and so judge in the light of the Word of God written and incarnate. Doag failed to do that. And so he became a badge of dishonor and the incarnation of evil in all the Old Testament. And he is a warning to us by his being recorded in the pages of redemptive history and by this particular song which is meant to teach our hearts as well as our minds that we must be careful not to swing our swords not to pull them out of the sheath too early, uh, to be careful that we do not strike down where striking is not deserved or where a warning should not be heeded. We have David singing to us a caution to beware lest we fall into the sin of Doag. For you see, providence, David tells us here, will ultimately get you. Providence, you see, gets us because at the end of the day, the God of providence is good. God will avenge, we read in verse 5. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And we are left by David with a pause to chew the cud on that verse and what it might mean for our lives. The great theologian of the, of the Reformation, Calvin, noted, God would not allow Doag's treachery to pass unpunished. He would level the table in the record of history. God's people, in verse 6, are said to see and fear not to see and fear Doag, but to see and fear his evil. To see and fear his, fear his wrong way of living. His horrible and wicked deed. They fear doing the same. And so the whole church is blessed by this cautionary example from the dark side. And we even read, They shall laugh. They shall laugh at him saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge? but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction, we laugh. We will laugh at Doag and his master soul because the righteousness of God and the justice and holiness of God will shine like the noonday in the face of this evil. David here sings to us and teaches our hearts that the grace of God is much better still than the evil of Doag and his master. In verse 8 we read, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. David turns from addressing the evil lynchman and his evil master 
And he turns, and in the mirror of God's Word, he sees his own face in life. He's not praising himself. He's praising his Heavenly Father. He turns and says that the goodness of God and the blessing of God in his own life is better than all the evil that Doag can unsheath. I am a green olive tree in the house of God, he says. You know, we don't know the timing of when David wrote. Did he take up pen and, and parchment just after this heartbreaking experience? As the people in his group were trembling and weeping, was he picked up and carried along by the Holy Spirit? And did he write words that we have now here before us? Or was it many years later, as he reflected upon that seminal event, where he was taught in the face of a pit of endless evil to trust in the Lord who would see him safely through. Years later, as he stood in the sanctuary worshiping his God, is that when the Spirit picked him up and gave him these words and this illustration to charm his heart and ours that he was like a green olive tree And that we can be too as we dwell in the house of God, trusting in Him forever. Oh, it's clear. It's the steadfast love of God. It's the covenant love of God. It's the unshakable love of God. Not built upon even the pillars of our own small obediences, but rather built upon the pillar of God's covenant promises, which are unshakable throughout all of our days, no matter what may come. And he ends with overflowing doxology. I will thank you forever, in verse 9, because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. David here notes that God is the one who has defended him. Even though he has been surrounded by those of such treachery and evil that would seek to slaughter countless little ones in order to get his life, that the Lord indeed would see him safely through. And that he would dwell not with the doags of this world, not sitting and supping and fellowshipping with the wicked and evil ones, but rather in the presence of the godly ones, filled to overflowing with the fruits and gifts of the Holy Spirit in their life, for whom the very Son of God incarnate was born at Bethlehem and lived and died for their sins. Oh, David, David was not terrified, but rather his heart was satisfied in the covenant goodness of his God especially in the face of evil. He saw a glimpse of that resurrection light. Just as Jesus, who was faced with the hatred and the terrors of the Pharisees, looked forward to the day of triumph and resurrection, even though he had to pass through a portal of great suffering, and sorrow to see that day come. Oh, 
resurrection light, Pentecost fullness, and ultimately His judgment of all the earth to come. And in your life, as you face suspicion and pressure for the Gospel, as there is persecution in the lives of believers in this place and all around the world, we have the comfort and encouragement of the Lord through His Apostle that our suffering is not in vain, but that it fills up the sufferings even of Christ. And that all our living, even the pain that we experience now, finds true and eternal meaning and hope in Jesus Christ our Lord, who indeed makes all things new. Trust in Him. And you will not be doag. And you will not be disappointed. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that You might keep us safe by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Help us to follow the Son of God incarnate and His Heavenly Father. Help us to hear and follow His Word. Help us, O God, not to set a foot wrong in the service of Your kingdom, but rather to serve You with zeal and with light and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.